The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, um, I've been talking about the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths for the last little while. And uh, last time I talked about the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, wise intention, and how wise intention follows on from wise view, which is the first aspect of the Eightfold Path. And just to overview for those of you who may not be familiar with the, the Eightfold Path, the Eightfold Path is a set of practices basically for training our minds to support um, the understanding of why we struggle so much. So the Eightfold Path is a training in understanding our minds and how our minds are reactive. And then uh, support, there are supportive tools for helping us understand and let go of that reactivity so that we can experience freedom and peace. So the, the eight aspects of the Eightfold Path are wise view, wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood, which is kind of the realm of our outer uh, lives. And then wise mindfulness, wise concentration, wise effort. Wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, which is the training in our inner lives to support this um, understanding of how and why we struggle so much. So the first two, the, the... training of wise view and wise intention are kind of a reorienting of our understanding about our lives, really. Um, You know, when we start to look at, with mindfulness, when we turn our attention to our experience and start to observe our struggles, we start to see actually that a lot of the reason why we struggle has to do not with what's happening in the world, but with with, with our reaction to it. And so the view, the wise view, is about understanding that it is that reactivity that needs to be observed, understood, and will eventually transform so that we can be more uh, skillfully responsive rather than reactive. Our reactions are built out of our habits, our conditioning, and we often aren't aware of how we're reacting we just kind of automatically react and we, we tend to think it's the, it's the world out there that's making us react this way. But when we start to pay attention with mindfulness, we see, no, it's actually our mind that makes us react. And that our minds are under our own uh, purview. <laughs> and there is a way that through these tools of the Eightfold Path, we can begin to um, bring our minds into alignment with understanding and acting on this truth that it is this reactivity that is the source of our struggles rather than what's actually happening in the world and in our lives. And so the, the intention, the, the, this view, this understanding of how um, this reactivity is kind of the source of our problems, begins to lead to intentions to act and behave in line with that understanding. Last week I overviewed wise intention, the three aspects of wise intention, renunciation of sense desire, 
um, the intention towards kindness of of love, essentially, and the intention towards compassion. Um, so I overviewed those, and uh, today I'd like to explore a little bit more about this intention of renunciation. As I said last week, this is um, not a word we like. You know, it's not something we're just going to, you know, yes, renunciation, I'm going to go for that. You know, kindness and compassion we can kind of sign up for, but renunciation is like, huh, you know, what's that about? So I want to explore a little bit what is being asked of us, what's being talked about here in this uh, area of renunciation. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's basically um, you know, the teachings around this kind of shift of perspective that we're undergoing through exploring our minds in this way. They're sometimes hard to understand, the, the, the teachings around this shift of perspective. They go against our usual understanding of how happiness comes about for us. So they ask us, these teachings basically ask us to look at our assumptions, to look at what's actually going on and question them. Question our assumptions about where happiness comes from. So they actually require us to not only shift our perspective but transform our whole understanding of the world. Transform our understanding of where our happiness comes from. So in particular, the Buddha does suggest that it's really helpful to understand and explore our perspective on sense pleasure. Understand and look at what our beliefs are around sense pleasure and how we act and respond to sense pleasure. With renunciation, and you know, this teaching of renunciation is intimately connected with uh, renunciation around sense desire. You know, we we think of renunciation as giving up something that we like. Now, that's actually, I think, the way it's um, framed in our culture, in a way, possibly through the Judeo-Christian tradition, in a way. Um, you know, the whole renunciation aspect of the of the um, the Christian tradition around Lent. You know, I think it's framed as giving up something you like, right? So, you know, that's kind of how we think about it, is that renunciation is about giving up something we like. In the in the understanding in this teaching, there is um, you know, some aspect of uh, you know that, that we do want to understand this, these things that we like. We want to understand what's happening around these things that we like. But the, the understanding is not actually just simply about giving up something we like. It's more about letting go of a kind of a lesser kind of pleasure so that we can open to a deeper, more profound kind of happiness. So that in the renunciation around sense pleasure, we're not just letting go of something we like and want. We're actually allowing ourselves to open to something more satisfying, more deeply rewarding, a deeper kind of peace and happiness. So uh, there's a, uh, I, I couldn't find or I didn't take the time to look up the quote in the Dhammapada, but there's a, a little 
verse in the Dhammapada that refers to this, and I paraphrased it because I kind of have it in my mind. So it goes something like, if by giving up a lesser kind of happiness, one could find a greater happiness, one who is wise will give up that lesser for the sake of the greater. So this renunciation, this teaching on renunciation is connected to this wisdom that there's, there's a deeper kind of happiness that's available than the happiness of sense pleasure. So I'd like to speak about this and uh, to speak about a, an exploration that the Buddha offered for us. He said, this is, this is one way I explored sense pleasure for myself. This was helpful for me in looking at my connection with sense pleasure. And he offered it in, in what, what is kind of a three-step or uh, a three-part framework for looking at sense pleasure and sense desire. So um, he says that we should f- explore first how uh, the, the gratification of sense pleasure, so how it actually feels like it satisfies us. What is the gratification of sense pleasure? And how far does it extend? That's his, his pointing around this teaching. What is, what is the happiness of sense pleasure? How are we gratified by sense pleasure? And just how far does that happiness take us? The second aspect, and I'll talk about each of these, is to look at the danger in sense pleasure. Now, this one may not be quite so obvious to us, and I'll explore that uh, a little bit in in a moment. And the third is what he calls the escape in in the um, sense of sense pleasure. And the escape, I think it has a sense, this teaching around escape has a sense that we are somehow um, imprisoned by our own desires around sense pleasure. And that there is a sense of, you know, being caught, almost chained by our sense pleasure. So how can we move to become free of that bondage, become free of that, those chains? Because those chains are what are keeping us from tasting and connecting with the deeper kind of happiness that's possible. So I'd like to talk about each of these. Um, so first, the gratification. I actually really like this teaching, you know, this, this, uh, this teaching on looking at the gratification, the danger, and the escape with respect to sense pleasure. And in particular, the fact that he starts with gratification. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't say, you just have to, you know, cut this out of your life. You know, he, he's asking us to start from where we are, which is that we do experience a kind of a happiness, a kind of a gratification when we have things that we like. So he asks us to start from there, from looking at the, the happiness, the pleasure, the joy that comes from being surrounded by things that we like. So we, we feel kind of happy. We feel kind of gratified when we get what we want. So it's clear that there's a sense of that um, kind of happiness or gratification around sense pleasure. So the teaching or the instruction here is to acknowledge the truth of that, to recognize 
yeah, this makes me feel good. This makes me feel happy. I feel kind of satisfied that I got this thing that I wanted. But then to pay attention to that feeling of that satisfaction, of that pleasure, of that gratification. How does that gratification come to be? What happens to it? How long does it last? So the Buddha offered quite a few uh, similes for sense pleasure. Uh, Some of these are kind of challenging for us. Um, In one he compares... um, sense pleasure as being as if we are being dragged by two strong men to a pit of burning coals this one's hard for us to connect with you know (laughs) so that's the first one he uses in a way but you know uh, that one that one can be kind of hard for us to resonate with so I'm going to offer a few others and then come back to this notion of it being a a charcoal pit (laughs) so he compares um Sense pleasures to a dream. He says, suppose one dreamt about lovely parks, lovely groves, lovely meadows, and lovely lakes, and on waking, one sees nothing of it. So too, a noble disciple considers, sense sense pleasures have been compared to a dream. They provide much suffering and much despair while the danger in them is great. So basically what this is pointing to, the quality that this is pointing to around sense pleasure is that they're kind of ephemeral. You know, that that they they come and they go. They come and they go. And and we kind of, there's a kind of a, a diluting nature to the pleasure that they provide. I think that's the other piece that this is pointing to. That the the kind of, you know, if we have a, a nice dream, you know, it's, it's great. It's, it's really pleasant if we're having a nice dream. And we wake up and it's kind of like, oh, that was a dream, you know? It's like, there's, but, but we're, conf- we're, we're deluded in, often we're deluded in our dreams into believing the reality of them. I even have some dreams where I think, wow, this is just like a dream. But clearly, it's not a dream. You know, look how, you know, I, I'd make some tests. Like, like, you know, can I touch things? Can I smell? Yes, I, this has got to not be a dream. <laughs> it's amazing how our minds can delude us. And they delude us in our daily lives as well. They delude us into the belief of the satisfaction. The believing that this is a, a you know, a, a tangible, you know, something that we can hold on to. In the dream, there's a sense that it's real that we can hold on to it and taste it and touch it. And then we wake up and it's like, Pooh, where did that go? Likewise with sense pleasure and our daily lives, there's, there's the deluding nature of it. We kind of believe in the, the solidity of it, the permanence of it. He also compares uh, sense pleasure to borrowed goods. Suppose one has borrowed goods on a loan, a fancy carriage and fine jeweled earrings, and preceded and surrounded by those borrowed goods, one goes into the marketplace. Then people seeing, seeing them would say, that's a rich person. See how the rich enjoy their wealth. Then the owners of those things, whenever they saw the person, would take back their things. What do you think? Would that be enough to become dejected? So he compares sense pleasures to 
borrow, by having things borrowed, you know, that they're not really ours. So this points to the, again, the, a, a, an aspect of sense pleasure that we kind of take ownership of our, um, our, our property in a way, that the pleasures, and we think, this is mine. This is my thing. But there's a deluding nature around that ownership that things come and they go and this notion of ownership is a setup for suffering. Because when we, we take that kind of ownership, this is mine, there can be, you know, there, there, it will eventually go away. You know, things break, things get lost, things get stolen. We get bored with them. They just kind of sit on the shelf. We forget about them. They're no longer so satisfying. So that the, uh, this is another way in which sense pleasures are, are just not quite so satisfying as we might think. So we can't hold on to our sense pleasure. Now one, one of the aspects of this teaching is that it's, it's sense pleasure isn't really the problem here. It really is this wanting or the, the kind of holding to. You know, this is mine. This is my thing. I, I need to have this thing. It's, the, it's our relationship to. As I was saying earlier, it's really our relationship to our experience that the, that the issue is. It's not the experience itself. There will be pleasure that comes into our lives. There will be pain that comes into our lives. We can't stop this natural process of pleasure and pain. It's just what happens. But what we do is we tend to want to push away the painful and hold on to the pleasant. And that's, that reactivity is where the issue comes in. So when there is pleasure in your life, observe the kind of happiness to it that happens around it. Observe just how long it lasts. And observe your relationship to it. Oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is right. This is my happiness. So uh, begin to observe all of that. This, um, there's kind of a belief also that comes around sense pleasure, one of the kind of really fundamental misunderstandings that we have, is that when we have some sense pleasure, we... Um, we feel, we feel good about ourselves. We feel like, yes, this is, this is the way it's supposed to be. And um, in that kind of belief that comes, the belief, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be, it's kind of a setup for us. If we believe, oh, this, this is the way we're supposed to be living our lives, to have this sense of pleasure, to have this, you know, what we actually believe, not so much in the permanence of an individual experience of sense of pleasure, because we know that things come and go. But we do think that the way we're um, supposed to live our lives, the way life is supposed to be, is to kind of be a continual string of happy things. You know, that's kind of what we've been... That's what commercials tell us. <laughs> happy moment, happy moment. Have this product, then have this product, and this product, or this experience, and this vacation, and this job, and this car. And, and if you just string it all along, that's happiness. So we kind, of, we kind of believe that that's where our happiness comes from. And that's really... Um, 
that belief itself makes us keep looking for the next thing. So again, notice what happens in the moment of having something that we like. You you might start to see how this whole process around desire works. Because what seems to happen is that, you know, we have this moment of desire of something, oh, there's something I want. And we act on it and we get it. And in the getting, there is a kind of a happiness. That happiness has two sides to it. And this is something that we don't often see. We don't often look at the two-sided nature of this happiness. And so I'll talk about this a little bit. This is an area of exploring the happiness of sense pleasure. Usually what we see mostly is the happiness of the having. You know, we get the thing that we want. It feels like, yeah, this is, this is, things feel right now. This, this feels good. So there's that aspect. We've gotten something that we like, what we want. The other aspect around the happiness of sense pleasure, of getting something, is that the wanting goes away. The wanting of something when we start to observe this whole process around wanting and having, we see that the wanting actually doesn't feel good. You know? the, the springing up of wanting, in the movement of the springing up of wanting, there's already a feeling of lack, of insufficiency, that something's off. And the only way that we have ever learned to deal with that sense of lack is to get the thing that we want. So this is, you know, an exploration around this begins to show that, that the, you know, the, the two-sided nature of that happiness, you know, that, that the wanting goes away and that we get something that we want. You know, actually, the, when we start to see this, the letting go or the, le- the release of the wanting is often actually the greater part of the happiness. It's kind of surprising. But if you observe this wanting and don't act on the uh, wanting to get the thing, you'll see at some point that the wanting goes away. And if you can, I mean, I've, I've done this mostly on retreat. I can see this kind of exploration of watching the mind want something, you know, want to look at somebody or want to get a particular, you know, want to get seconds for food or something. It's like, okay, I'm on retreat. I might as well not get the seconds and just observe this wanting. So just observing the wanting. On retreat, I can actually watch the wanting and see it, you know, fade and disappear. When that happens, that letting go of wanting, it can feel like you're released from a vice grip. So that's actually the, the, the larger part of the happiness that comes when we get something that we want. It's the letting go of the wanting. So exploring this process around wanting and having and wanting and having. And what we start to see also is that when the, you know, we get something that we like, you know, there's, there's, um, 
you know, some small thing, you know, oh, you know, I want a piece of chocolate or I want this kind of food or something. And we get that thing. And there's that little moment of, of oh, yeah, that's nice. And, and then if you see, as that happiness or pleasure of that small moment begins to fade, what happens is because the, whole, the mind has this notion that the way to happiness is to string along these moments, we start looking for the next thing to want so that we can get something, so that we feel that moment of pleasure again. Have you ever gotten a catalog? Joseph Goldstein talks about this. Have you ever gotten a catalog and started looking through it, looking for things to want to want? Oh, what do I, what do I want? <laughs> this is actually the way we, we live a lot of our lives. We're looking for the next thing to want so that we can have something, so that we get that feeling. So the Buddha suggests exploring this. This gratification around sense pleasure is largely connected to the letting go of the wanting. And so if we can explore this wanting, watch the wanting, watch it release on its own without even having the having, we actually see much of the time that that the kind of release and happiness that comes from that letting go of the wanting is enough. You know, we don't really need to want. So as we explore this gratification, we start to see what the Buddha calls the danger of sense pleasure. And part of the danger of sense pleasure is that it kind of keeps us on this cycle of wanting to want. Because we, you know, having this belief around this is the way to find happiness, we just end up endlessly, well, what's the next thing I can want so that I can have it, so that I feel that feeling again? So that's part of the danger of sense pleasures, that it keeps us tied to this kind of cycle around wanting. It essentially reinforces this pattern of wanting keeping us in this state of feeling of insufficiency for so much of our lives. So in some ways, that's why the Buddha compares the um, sense pleasures to a, 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 coal, a charcoal pit. Because it keeps us tied to this state of insufficiency. This, you know, this mistaken belief around where happiness comes from keeps us tied to this state of insufficiency. And it is a a mental state. It's nothing that's imposed from outside. It is within our own minds. And in that analogy, the Buddha talks about two strong men dragging. I'll read it. Let's see. Suppose there were a charcoal pit deeper than a man's height, full of glowing coals without flame or smoke. And someone came who wanted to live and not die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain. And two strong men seized them by both arms and dragged them toward the charcoal pit. What do you think? Would that person twist their body this way and that? So uh, the Buddha compares this, you know, as being pulled or dragged towards this charcoal pit. And I think of that pulling and dragging as being that quality of wanting. That, that wanting. On, the, on a recent retreat, I, 
I was really observing this, uh, this wanting, this eagerness to go play, to, you know, oh, that, that, ooh, that, that, ooh, that. So I was really observing this quality of eagerness. And there was this interesting experience, the image that came into my mind, which the Buddha doesn't offer, but I'll offer it, um, is that it, it was kind of like, you know how when swimmers um, do their little flip and coil their body up and then, you know, shoot out in... That's what it felt like. It's a coiling of all the energies. And, oh, yes, that's how I want to go. That's what it felt like. That's what that desire felt like. And it, it, it's, it's got a strong momentum to it, you know, that wanting, that eagerness. And it's, you know, we can watch it, fortunately. You know, we can watch it. But it's got a lot of strength to it. And that's what I think of as those two strong men, is the strength of that eagerness of that wanting. So that's, I think, the biggest danger of this sense pleasure is really that it's connected to this misunderstanding around where happiness comes from. And it keeps us tied to this state of lack, this feeling of insufficiency. The Buddha also points out a number of other pitfalls of sense pleasure. Um, I think this is kind of an amusing uh, amusing discourse in a way some of it um he really points he he points out right to you know what we do in the pursuit of pleasure i'm going to paraphrase a little bit modernize the words a little bit he says we suffer in the pursuit of pleasure we work long hours and contort our body over computers endure meetings and tedium in the pursuit of sense pleasure of acquiring the money that we want to buy a bigger house, a nicer cell phone, or a, a cooler car. So there's a kind of a, you know, we put ourselves in a place of enduring tedium and suffering to acquire the things that we want. If we try to get the, th- the things that we want and we don't succeed, we feel like a failure. If we get the things we succeed in getting the things. We get fearful and worried that somebody might take them from us or that they get lost or broken. So there's that fear aspect. He says, because of wanting to have things, people will break into other people's houses, commit burglary and seduce people. Because of the pursuit of pleasure, people will invade other countries. Because of wanting control, power, and wealth, rulers oppress their own people or enslave people. Because of wanting sense pleasure, people kill, cheat, lie, and steal. So he points to this, you know, this, this, this wanting, this feeling of lack. It's not just a feeling of lack. It actually motivates a lot of unwholesome actions. A lot of, in, in our world, a lot of the difficulties in our world come from this mistaken understanding. So it's not only our personal suffering that's traced to this. We can trace a lot of the, a lot of the difficulties of society, a lot of the ills of our world to this orientation we have as human beings. So the Buddha suggests, I think, as a support for 
beginning to realize that the the danger of sense this danger of sense pleasure we can begin to understand how this sense pleasure is kind of a lesser kind of happiness i mentioned this earlier I'll, I'll i'll read a little bit to you about what the buddha said about this from his own recognition he said Having understood as they really are the origin, the passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of sensual pleasure, I abandoned craving for sensual pleasures. Now, see, that, see he, here he says explicitly, it's the craving he abandoned. It's not the sensual, sensual pleasures itself. I abandoned craving for sensual pleasures. I removed the fever of sensual pleasures, and I dwell without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace, I see other people who are not free from lust from sensual pleasures, being devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, burning with the fever of sensual pleasures, indulging in sensual pleasures, and I do not envy them, nor do I delight therein. Why is that? Because there is a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. So I take delight in that. I do not envy what is inferior. So this is really pointing to that. Uh, there's, the Buddha is saying he's found a deeper kind of happiness. And he, he points to two things. He speaks of divine bliss, which is essentially the, the, the happiness that comes from meditation, from concentration. And that as we settle our minds and still our minds in meditation, there can be a kind of a pleasantness that arises. It can be more than just a kind of a pleasantness. It can be bliss. It can be really, really pleasant. The whole body can be flooded with just delightful, pleasant experience. This kind of pleasantness is a deeper kind of pleasantness than the happiness of sense pleasure. It's not dependent upon the external world. It's, uh, it is dependent on conditions, and it, it, um, but it comes from within. It comes from the ability to train our minds. But the Buddha says that there's a a happiness that surpasses even divine bliss. That even happiness that surpasses even this meditative pleasure. And that is the happiness of insight. The happiness of seeing things as they are and of not having this, uh, this reactivity. That we can be with experience and not either have to want to get rid of it or want to hold on to it, but simply meet it and receive it. And in that meeting and receiving, we are begin to be motivated by these skillful intentions, the intention of the letting go of sense desire, the intention of kindness and the intention of compassion. And so our actions are motivated not out of our normal states of wanting to get rid of and wanting to hold on to, but are motivated out of kindness and compassion. So that the, um, you know, this movement that we're, this, this uh, path that we're on takes us from being reactive to more skillfully responsive. Let's see. This is, I'm going to leave a little time for questions. Hmm. So a little bit more about this less, lesser nature of, of sense pleasure. Um, you know, kind of I think what happens for us 
is that we, in, um, in having the sense pleasure, because this is the way we've been trained, this is the way that you know, our culture reinforces, you know, get what you want, you'll be happy, we tend to think that when we have what we want, that that's as good as it gets. You know, so we don't really see, we don't understand, we misperceive that that kind of happiness is the greatest kind of happiness. We think it's the best that it gets. There's a, um, uh, an analogy from mathematics. I'm a, I was a mathematician for a while. Um, in computer science and computers, there's a... Uh, a program that you can write in order to find the highest point on a graph. And, um, and so you might have a situation that looks something like this. You know, here's, here's a graph that's got two peaks on it. And if you get to this point, the, 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 the top of the lower hill, you know, it's like everywhere you go from there is down. You know, it's like that must be the peak, you know. So a smart uh, algorithm that it's called a hill climbing algorithm. It's called the, you know, so you write this program that's trying to find the peak. A smart peak knows that in searching this graph, it may have to go down in order to find a higher peak. And so it's kind of similar to like that with the, um, with this, lesser kind of sense pleasure. You know, initially it may feel like we're letting go of something that we want, that we like, that, and that we're renouncing. So it may have that feeling of renunciation. You know, when we're on this part of the journey, where we're going down the t- from the peak, it may feel like that, you know, that typical kind of renunciation that we talked about earlier. So we kind of have to go through this down terrain in order to see, oh, there's actually a higher, a higher kind of happiness, a, deep, a deeper kind of happiness that can be found through this exploration of training our minds. So there's, there's a, you know, kind of a vivid simile that the Buddha uses around um, the pitfalls of sense pleasures. So, you know, this is, again, looking at the danger of sense pleasure. And um, I'm just going to use one of them, the one that we can most clearly connect to. He talks about a leper whose, you know, body is covered with sores and um, that, that that leper is, is, is scratches their body because it feels good. He also talks about the leper cauterizing their body over fire and that the, that the, the leper's... Um, Senses are so uh, distorted that that there's a they think that it's pleasurable. It's pleasurable for them to burn the skin, and so this is pointing to the distorting nature of sense pleasures. That there's kind of a fundamental misunderstanding around the sense pleasures. Now the the, the itching one, I think we can really connect with. You know, if you have a you know, something like poison oak. If you've ever had poison oak, I mean, a mosquito bite kind of works for this too, but it's not quite as intense. Um, if you have a mosquito bite or you have a, a strong itch, while you're scratching it, you know, there's kind of a feeling of pleasure, right? You know, it feels good to scratch it. But when you stop scratching it, what happens? It gets even worse. This is particularly the case with poison oak, you know. 
And for bed bug bites, for those of you, <laughs> which I've had from Burma, you know, <laughs> you get a bed bug bite, you know, it, it itches. If you scratch it, it like explodes with, with uh, unpleasantness. And you realize after that it would have been much better never to have scratched it because the intensity of the, of the itch gets so much worse. So this again is pointing to this you know, the nature of this, um, this cycle, this chain around sense pleasure. The wanting, you know, if we want, it, it, it's like the, the scratching is like the, uh, the fulfilling that insufficiency of wanting. You know, that we think that um, by the having that we will somehow relieve that wanting and that that's where the happiness, you know, we, the thing, having that thing is the happiness. So that's like the scratching, you know. The scratching is like fulfilling that happiness of that wanting. And what happens when that, so that sense of pleasure dies is the wanting just explodes in full force. It's like, oh. So it kind of, that's kind of the cycle of how that um, wanting works. So here's, it is, and this is what he says about this, the more one indulges in sense pleasure, the more the craving for sense pleasure increases, the more one is burned by the fever of sense pleasures. Yet we find a certain measure of satisfaction and enjoyment independence on sense pleasure. So as we explore the, the gratification of sense pleasure, we start to see how it's connected with this danger. And now the escape, the escape from sense pleasure is really the, uh, you know, it's in that analogy of the two strong men dragging you to the pit, the escape is the escape from that kind of imprisoning force of that wanting. And we can, um, we, we begin to see that it's possible to escape from this through the cultivation of both the meditation and the understanding through mindfulness. The mindfulness practice is really where we see how this process all works and we can begin to let go of that wanting. So the pleasure, the meditative pleasure that we can experience and the pleasure of understanding even small moments of letting go. That, you know, that small moment I described of being released from a vice grip, you know, pretty, pretty significant recognition. So one way to understand this intention towards renunciation is not as an automatic outright rejection of sense pleasure, but rather as a willingness to engage in this exploration around gratification, danger, and escape. You know, the willingness to, 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 to have the recognition or the notion that maybe there's something else. You know, we might have to take that on faith initially, you know, that there's a, a, a deeper kind of happiness to be found. But the willingness to engage in this exploration is really uh, an aspect of this renunciation. And I'm going to close by reading two quotes from Bhikkhu Bodhi that I read last week, but I like them so much I want to read them again. So Bhikkhu Bodhi is a, is a translator of the 
the Pali texts that came to us from 2,600 years ago. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of desire, desire falls away by itself without the need for struggle. In this investigation, our concern must not be for what is pleasant, but with what is true. We have to be prepared and willing to discover what is true, even at the cost of our comfort. For real security always lies on the side of truth, not on the side of comfort. So, any thoughts, comments? Anyone? Going back to really early on today in your talk, you said something about putting on all the jewels and things and going out into the market. And one thing that popped up for me that was implied but maybe not said was you you'd said that what happens when these people want their things back and you're without this. But the other... The other part of that is all, you mentioned the people looking at this person with all the jewels. And this person, um, the, the people viewed it, her as, oh, she has money and wealth and uh-huh. maybe happiness or whatever they view. We don't know. But um, what, what struck me is that her truth wasn't there and that was missing because she was being something and trying it wasn't getting to the essence of who she that's, was. That's and beautiful. you ended this today with truth. And that's what made me go back to that. Yeah. I, I thought right away that, you know, the biggest thing was um, she went for pleasure and comfort, but it was lacking the truth of herself. Of who, of who she actually who was. She was. Yes. And I, that's, that's a beautiful uh, recognition. It's the, essentially, you know, a lot of this acquisition that we make is around trying to be something or be someone, you know, that... Um, you know, maybe you know, we, we're just thinking we're trying to be more who we are, but this whole notion of being someone is actually running counter to, uh, to the truth. That you know, there, there's no one here. You know, there's, there's something here. There's a process happening. But there's not, an, there's not a thing or a, uh, you know, a fixed being that is controlling and maneuvering. There's controlling that happenings. There's maneuvering that's happening. There's, there's acquiring that happens. But there's no one who does those things. Now, this is, this is a whole other talk. <laughs> so I won't go much more into that. But that's a, that's a great um, pointing, you know, that um, looking at in the having, what, what are we trying to do with that? You know, who are we trying to be? Are we kind of um, trying to be something that's kind of apart from truth? Thank you. Yeah. Um, Could you pass the mic back? It's it's going over in the... Oh, oh, why don't you pass one back to... um, I think she was first, so... (laughs) And then you can... The button on 
A pu- there's a button on the side, and it should turn green. Got it. Okay. Okay. So my question is, does it matter what the wanting is? Because, for example, what if you're wanting to just survive in the Bay Area, or you want, like, health? It's really easy for me to say, you know, oh, splendid jewels, you know. It really me, matters really what different. the wanting is. It does. Um, the, the wanting here is the wanting that's kind of connected with uh, particular results in a way, you know, that... Um, uh, that you know that there, there's there's two words that are often translated as desire in the Pali, and one is tanha. It's often translated as desire, and that word has the sense of craving. You know that that there's a neediness there. You know there's a stickiness to the craving. The other word is chanda which is a neutral, more neutral kind of desire. And that desire is, um, that can either be wholesome or unwholesome. It, um, it is flavored by the intention in the mind that's associated with it. And so if it's flavored by kindness and compassion, it's moving us in a skillful direction. If it's flavored by greed or aversion, it's moving us in an unskillful direction. So it's, it's actually not so much about the desire itself, but around the, the kind of motivations that accompany it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then? Yeah. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yes. Um, so you had talked about you went away on a retreat and you wanted to focus on this or... It was something that came up. It wasn't my focus. It was okay. just, it was something that came up. For, I was noticing a lot of greed. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. So my question is, is are there, like, if, if it's our intention to work on this and bring it maybe into our meditation, are there some tools that you can give us that, you know, to kind of move through this? So um, I would recommend, mostly what I recommend in the meditation practice is to simply notice what's coming up. Um, and there will be greed that comes up. And there will be aversion that comes up. And the, the exploration for both of those is very similar in a way. Often with greed and aversion, with both of those, with the wanting and the not wanting, there's some movement towards something. We're, tr- we're moving outwards in the, to try to do something. Now, it may be a wanting to create a state in the mind, you know, um, but there's something we're going for. You know, there's something we're trying to create or have or get rid of if it's aversion. And the, often our, our movement in our mind is to, to pay attention to the thing that we want or want to try to do or construct, that that's where orientation is going. And the exploration that the Buddha suggests is let go of attending to that and turn to the feeling of the wanting or not wanting itself. So the exploration is around this, a lot of the exploration is around the feeling of the wanting. So you can explore in your body, how does it feel? What kind of thoughts does it produce? You know, oh, I need this. This is important. I need this because X, Y, and Z. It's, you know, there's, our minds have no shame. You know, they'll convince us <laughs> of anything. <laughs> So, so, you know, noticing what your mind says to you, noticing, but but in particular, I think coming into the body 
is very helpful in this exploration. You may have time for one more, yeah. Oh, we got one. I think sometimes I get a little, I guess confused is the word, um, between sense experience and sense desire. And well, I'm, I'm kind of not afraid of renunciation, but then when some of the confusion for me will be around things like art, like is it sense desire to go to a museum and look at, beautiful art or is that just sense experience uh-huh. and I think again that it's looking at the motivation you know um, um, you know I don't know if you were here for Cheryl's memorial uh, I wasn't here but I, I do know the quilt that she created and so the quilt that was I think it was hanging up here so this uh, a friend of mine who died had created this beautiful quilt for a monk, and um, it's you know it's a, it's a stunning quilt. And when he received it, his um, you know I think he wasn't expecting much, but his response was was something like it's stunning, you know. So there was an appreciation of the beauty of it, you know. It's so the appreciation is a beautiful kind of quality. Um, and, you know, if we're, if we're thinking we have to avoid putting ourselves in situations where we may be experiencing sense pleasures, that's not so helpful. But it is around looking at, you know, you know, if you're in this museum, you know, there might be a sense of eagerness. It's like, oh, there's that, and oh, oh, that, and that, and that, and not really taking in what the experience is. So, so looking at that kind of you know, motivation in the mind, in particular looking for eagerness. I think eagerness is a good word. You know, we kind of get, we jump ahead of ourselves instead of really appreciating and exploring what's here. So we need to stop. So thank you for your attention. And I'll be uh, 